0: Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together tonight as a, as a Mishmachai and study your word and learn more about you. And Father, we ask that each and everything that is said tonight would be glorifying to you and that you would receive much honor and praise out of it. Give us open minds and open hearts tonight, Father, to receive what you have through David. Speak to him, Father, in the language that each of us can understand. For these things we ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. So welcome, everybody. We're going to be talking. This is our last. <clears throat> My schedule to be our last class on the uh, on this book. I don't think we'll extend in the next week on tonight. Although I do have a lot, little more information I, than normal tonight, only because of the nature of of this this last festival. That being that it's it's really you know the the, the key to understanding the festival is to look at the book, and I want to try to kind of go through each chapter of the book and look at some highlights, make some observations around along the way, maybe a few applications. After we get through some preliminary um, preliminary items, and actually, if you need some notes, I'm going to put the, the notes, Do you mind, some new people came in. Uh, so after some preliminary items, we're going to kind of just spend most of the time in the book, and everyone knows the book that we're in, right, the biblical book for Purim. Does anyone not know? So, this is the book of Esther. This is (laughs) (laughs) outside. This is outside. What's that? Oh, oh. Oh. Folks, folks, listen, please. Listen. Yes, this, this is a very, I think, a very significant um, holiday, if you will, a remembrance. They're all remembrances. And again, tonight will be a little different than normal. And, and I'd like to, if possible, I, I might want to have less questions. We'll just see how the time goes, or questions or comments, because I really do want to go through at least some of the highlights from each chapter of the book. You may or may not be familiar with them. Uh, in Esther, Esther is, uh, is 10 chapters, it really doesn't take that long to read. Um, in English and Hebrew they, they actually you know they read the whole scroll of Esther for the holiday and that's what goes on in synagogues, just kind of straight through reading. And there's a, I saw one on YouTube a while back, it took like thirty seven minutes, just a and it wasn't a blazing speed of Hebrew, but just, so my point is it doesn't take a long time. It's kind of one of those page turner type of books. Yes? Yep. I had a comment about a question. Okay. If I remember right, they have Esther was one that it had its own scroll. Well, I mean depending on if you see, like, the scroll exhibit, for example, there's a traveling scroll exhibit. There are there are some individual scrolls. I mean, that's, I would say yes or no. Typically, yes, it is its own scroll. Um, but there are other, that's not so much unique necessarily to Esther. I mean, you'll see when they lined up those scrolls in here for that, that, that traveling exhibit, there are some books that just are one scroll. You can commission one book of the Bible to be, you know, if you've got about $80,000 and you want to just not sure what to do with it, you could have a Torah scroll commissioned, uh, you know, and you could have one book yeah. by a scribe. So, uh, But in general, yeah. In fact, um, the uh, skipping ahead to one of the traditions that's listed there, you know, they talk about if you the, the phrase uh, reading the whole Megillah. Sometimes you hear that, you oh, it's the whole Megillah. kind of means the whole thing. Megillah actually is a word, a Yiddish word. Uh, Hebrew or two, that's, that means scroll or tome or volume, and that's the idea. Although there are other megillahs, megillot, the idea is that you read the entire thing <laughs> on, on Purim. Um, major theme of Purim, again, some of this might be review, if you, you may be familiar with, but really the big theme of Purim is just what I put on your, on your notes there. It's God's preservation of the Jewish people in the midst of a plot to destroy them, right? And that's a pretty common theme. We, we talked about it before. We say most of the Jewish holidays have that theme of they tried to kill us. God wouldn't let them, and now let's eat. That's one of the themes. And um, I referenced you to Esther 9.20 because actually I think it actually sort of says it right there. I'll read for you Esther 9.20. It says this is after the whole thing happened, after this plot to kill the Jews was foiled uh, by God, I believe. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit, little bit as well. Uh, It says that Mordecai, who is the hero of the story, recorded these things, all the stuff that happened, sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th of the same month, year by year, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor. So that's what the Jews did. So to me, that's sort of the picture of, man, they tried to kill us, they, they didn't, and so now let's eat. That's that's really what it says there. It's definitely uh, exhibit A of the, that sort of, uh, what do you call it, that saying, I guess, if you want to call it a saying in Judaism. So that's the major theme. If we were to say, what's poor him about? That's what it's about. They were going to kill him. God didn't let him, and I want to talk a little bit about the God part of it, because that's also another big a big part of, of Purim, but first let's talk about some of the traditional things, some of the things you might have read uh, in God's appointed times, but I talked about reading the whole scroll, the whole book of Esther, and when it's read in the synagogue, you know, you listen carefully for the word Haman and Mardukai and, and, and Esther, those are the words you either boo at when they say Haman or you spin the little noisemakers um, to drown out the memory, to drown out the name. I get it. It's kind of ironic when I think about it, because the more attention is drawn to it, really, we're not forgetting them, But we are, in a sense, drowning out the names. We don't even, don't even want to hear the name. And then you cheer when the, the hero and heroine are mentioned, Mordecai and Esther. So that's kind of fun, definitely fun for the kids to do. Um, you eat, uh, uh, and by the way, does everyone know Esther's real name? Hadassah, right? It means a myrtle, it's just, but that's a very more visibly Jewish name, so her name was, was Esther. In uh, the story changed her name to Esther. Um, I didn't always know that So I thought you might not uh, We eat hamantash and little uh, triangular Cookies and so forth um, And they're supposedly representative Of a, of a funny hat that Haman wore Possibly possibly his ears His, his, his ears as well uh, One or the other So that, that's another tradition There are also gift baskets that are given Which I didn't do this as a child But gift baskets are often given I put in the notes there also There's a very sad story about that Messianic Jewish boy back in 2008 I believe Is when it was uh, 15 years old. He received this gift basket and it blew up. And it turns out it came from kind of a zealot. It wasn't really a, a real. It was a. Uh, it was. It was 15 years old. It was. It was done by a Jewish person. Um, it was just sort of a real oddball. I say oddball Jewish guy. You, you have to see. Sort of a, a very far. Kind of like an on his own, like a lone wolf kind of guy. And interestingly, I told this to my friend Joe, my Orthodox friend. You know, the story, and he was just. It was a horrible story for him. He said, "Look, I don't care what you believe necessarily. But that's Jew on Jew. And he was you know, a messianic Jew and he said, that's, that's just a really a really bad thing. The good news is uh, that that boy Ami Ortiz is, Ami Ortiz is his name. And he, he survived, plays basketball, he's in perfect shape yeah. as far as I know. There's a website uh, put in your notes as well. If you want to check out his story the story about that, dot Ami com, and it kind of has the videos and different stories about this kind of thing, but that's all because I'm talking about gift baskets. The big thing most kids know about Purim is the, the party or the, 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 the costume part of it. And typically, it used to be you just dress up as one of the characters from the story. You could be good or bad. And I remember the congregational leader at the congregation I used to be at in Maryland, he's, uh, he Skyped me one day and he said, Oh, Purim's coming up. Are you going to dress up like Esther as usual? And so he um, was kind of a joker. But no, usually you dress up as the king or the queen or something like that, uh, appropriate to who you are. And, uh, <clears throat> so that's, but it's become more of like a Halloween kind of thing, an answer to Halloween. Just like we talked about Hanukkah last week, how sometimes there's been an answer to, to Christmas in a sense, somehow Purim got tied in with Halloween in the sense of, or, or dress up, or maybe Mardi Gras too. It's all, you know, we all, we gotta be just like, uh, like these, these kind of things out there. Um, so that's another thing that happens, uh. We have the Purim spiel, the uh, like, a, like a reenactment of the story. Sometimes we've had them here at you Tzion. The kids doing, them, they're very creative. Uh, sometimes the exact story with little twists and little fun things here and there to make it a little modern. And then the idea that I uh, put in your notes that and some of you, this is just an idea. Not something we're going to do, I recommend you do. But uh, alcohol is very prevalent at Purim, just kind of like it is at Simchat Torah. And they say you should drink so much that you don't know the difference between saying bless Mordecai, curse Haman, or what have you. So... We don't follow that tradition necessarily. <laughs> so those are some of the traditions, the major theme. Um, now, when it comes to Scripture, I have mentioned before how you know, the idea of the theme is that God intervened, God protected. And this is where a lot of people debate because they say, look, there are some that say that this book of Esther should not even be in the Bible because it does not mention God's name specifically. So that's a big that's a big debate, kind of like we talked about last week with Hanukkah, although we have references and things that allude to and specific references in the in the Shah, the New Testament, with regard to Hanukkah. Uh, in, in Purim, you don't have the name of God necessarily. However, um, I mean our position, my position is that certainly God is very um, implicit in the story, implied, if not arguably explicit. There are too many what we would say are coincidences. Uh, There's a version of the Bible called called the uh, the Stone edition of the Bible, which is just it's a it's an English translation, what we'd call a Jewish translation in a sense. Um, And in the beginning of that 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 Stone edition of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Art Scroll specifically Stone edition of the Hebrew Scriptures, um, reads like this. It says one can interpret events as coincidences until they fit a pattern too well. To be anything but part of a well conceived plan. So it was in the book of Esther. All the pieces fit, and the Jewish people suddenly realized that nothing had been left to chance, that God had been watchful all along, and that all that was wanting for their salvation was for them to recognize the source of their existence. So the book of Esther is the last one to be recorded, they say in the, in the Hebrew, not in the way it's printed, in the Bible, the last one to be recorded. They say the oldest book. And the first that should come to mind when everything seems hopeless. So talking about the coincidences, or and I'm going to go through some of what those coincidences were, to kind of decide for yourself, hey, is this coincidence, or is this really God in the picture? Because at some point, you stack up too many coincidences, and it seems like, okay, wait a minute. I don't think uh, it's just coincidence. And this is also another one of many stories we see in the Bible. We see it in the Joseph narrative, for example, of the very thin threads that preserve sometimes it's the preservation of the, the line of Judah specifically the line that Yeshua comes from in this case it's, it's the thin thread of the preservation of the Jewish people as a whole which also means that that preservation leads to Yeshua the Messiah as well so it's a very, that's why I think that, that, that the book of Esther which may be overlooked by a lot of people is a very important story without it There'd be no Yeshua, just like with no Hanukkah, there'd be no Christmas, with no Esther, there'd be no Yeshua, the same thing. It's very much one of those very thin threads of preservation of God's overall plan of preserving his chosen people to then be a blessing to the world. So, with regard to coincidences, let me just go over a few, some that you might, uh, might be obvious to, some that maybe you hadn't thought of before. Um... that uh i'm sorry the evidences of, of god and, and coincidence both together you've got fasting in the story okay you've got the idea there was prayer and fasting i'll talk about that when we get to that chapter um does it say they were praying were they praying and fasting to god and so forth you know i think that's sort of the general that has got to be the context the general idea of what that was about um mordecai's refusal to bow this is part of the story and again if, you, if you're not familiar with these parts of the story I'll get to them when I circle back around and look kind of briefly at each chapter. But the heroes, uh, this is kind of what triggered the idea that, that they wanted to, you know, that Haman wanted to kill the Jews, is that Mordecai would not bow to him. Now, I'll get into the history of that. There's a question of, you know, of Haman's uh, lineage. Haman, we, we know his lineage in the story. We don't know much about his background, but he said who he's the son of and so forth. And you can back it up to the Amalekites. If you remember the Amalekites, mm-hmm. and the enemies of, of Israel, I'll talk a little more specifically about that. But was it his refusal to bow because he knew that lineage, and then his lineage also from Benjamin, which is also very critical as well? I'll talk about that when we get to it in the chapter. Or was it his, his devotion to monotheism? Okay? Um, to, to, to shortcut to that answer, I believe it's a little, a little bit of both. But again, his refusal to bow, if it was one of those two things, those are both related, I and mean, clearly God's in the picture on either of those two things. Um, the fact just that. The king, you know, that, that Mordecai uncovered this plot to kill the king. Which, again, I may be speaking ahead of some things you don't not familiar with yet, but that was kind of what ended up saving saving things in the end. That was a turning point. And the fact that the king had a sleepless night that night just that, just happened to have turned into that book of the annals of the records of the of the of the, of the kingdom there, and they come up come across Mordecai's name, uh, and the fact that that that, uh, that the queen Vashti at the beginning of the story was deposed, and we have a new queen, and that Esther then became the queen. I'll talk about the, the unlikelihood of that and what, her, what the alternative could have been for her. Um, then uh, the fact that the festival was, was in, just the fact What I just read in chapter 9 there, that this language that says you're going to do this in perpetuity, you're going to celebrate this feast ongoing and so forth, that's the same formula that we've seen in all these other feasts, right? You're going to do this on this day of that month for this many days as a reminder and so forth. So it's that same kind of pattern as well. The fact that there was a delay between Haman's plot and the day that was set for the killing. There was, a, there was a little bit of a, it wasn't like, okay, now. And it was that minute. It was, the lot was cast. That's where we get the pouring from. The pouring is from the word poor, which means lots, kind of a gambling, roll the dice on the, on the day kind of thing, throw a dart on the calendar. But there was a delay. that Was, was, was that a coincidence? Um, the manner, when Mordecai found out about it, the way in which he lamented about it, it kind of seems like a sackcloth and ashes kind of thing. Again, a very typical spiritual thing. That would be in reverence to God. Mordecai's quote in chapter 4, he says, he's telling Esther this at the time when he wants her to go in and talk to the king. He says, if you keep silence at a time such as this, that relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. What is that about? Haman's wife, uh, when he goes and tells his wife about this whole thing, how things are looking ugly, what does his wife say? She says, if Mordecai, before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Again, does it say, because of the Lord your God, because of other Not necessarily, but again, these are all, again, mentions, parallels, coinc... or things that aren't necessarily coincidences that I think clearly point to the fact that um, God is very explicit in this story when it comes to, is God there, and should this be uh, something that is in the canon of scripture. So, <clears throat> I'll stop for just a brief moment. Any any comments or questions on that introductory? Because what I want to do is get into the, the chapter material. Yes, ma'am. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, how you were saying that um, the story leads up to the Messiah. Um, and what was that type, again, that the the, the lineage led up to? The... Well, so what I was saying is some. In that one, it's more broad. That this is the Jewish people in general. Okay. And if the Jewish people would have been wiped out, Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> so, that kind of thing. So, but there are other cases, like in this, in, when when some like line of David is preserved through through Ruth and so forth. Well, that's specifically the line of David. The, what you yes, Katrina. Just so, the last thing you were saying about uh, about Haman's wife. Yeah. I think I mean that's what that's how I would take it. Yeah. It's yeah. not like, oh the Jewish people it's not like oh you know clearly there was something about the Jewish people I think that really points they to that the, the Yeah God, that this is the God. one who has that God kind yeah. of thing. And he's obviously involved yeah. Yeah I think that's the connection that I would make with with her saying she's in the Jewish people, definitely. Anything else? Okay. So chapter one Esther. Good place to start. Um I'm going to kind of just give you some of the highlights. You can read the Bible. You can jot some notes down or whatever if you'd like. If not, <coughs> we can. I can provide some information to you later. But this is just my Cliff Notes kind of thing, summary. You've got this six-month-long party going on in the kingdom uh, by King Achashverosh. Sometimes you'll hear that name Xerxes. This is a case where if you don't read Hebrew, it's harder to read the English sometimes. <laughs> uh, so it's Achashverosh. Or you'll see it Xerxes maybe in your translations. Um and then he had another party in, in the capital. Uh, the text says that it was a serious, serious party going on. Drinking without restraint is what it says. So drinking without restraint, whatever that makes you think of. And th- during that time, he calls the queen, he calls his queen Vashti at the time to come in and, uh, you know, do whatever, to impress his guests. You know, my wife's hot, whatever it is, and wants everyone to see her. And, uh, you know, uh, she wouldn't come. And so she was deposed, and there was no more queen. That was basically, that's basically chapter one, the Cliff Notes version. And so chapter two begins this search for a new queen. And Hadassah, okay, is one of the women that's rounded up. There are 12 months of cosmetic treatments for this pool of women. Uh, Six months of oil and myrrh, six months of perfume and cosmetics, and this is an old joke, one I said before, but it says, you know, that statistics show that 90% of women today nowadays actually use this kind of cosmetics. And, and the study also says that the other 10% really should. <laughs> it's an old joke. <laughs> or not. <laughs> so <laughs> they've this big cosmetic treatment, this big beauty pageant and everything. And in Chapter 2, uh, Esther is chosen as the queen. And this is, again, I think the first amazing coincidence because, I mean, the reality is You know, this was all. A lot of women were brought together, and she could have easily, just as easily, been relegated just to one, another one of the harem. You know, another one of the concubines. But she was chosen to be queen, above everyone else. Again, coincidence? I don't know. Uh, Another part of the story that we're introduced to here in chapter two is we are we are introduced to Mordecai by way of the fact that he hears these two bodyguards talking about a plot to kill the king, and he tells somebody who can do something about it and they fo- it foils the plot. And that's what gets recorded in the annals that is later read by the, uh, the, the king. Well, we learn that Mordecai was the son of Jair, who was the son of Shemai. Oh, bummer. What's all this genealogy nonsense? Who was the son of Kish, a Benjamite? This is an important piece of, of information here because who else <coughs> was a Benjamite? Hmm? Who else? Further back. Saul. Saul, Saul was... So, we find out that Mordecai was in the line of Saul. Hold that in your mind just for a moment, okay? I kind of alluded to it a little bit, but we'll, we'll kind of circle back to it because, again, coincidence, I don't know, but it's a very important piece of uh, information in the story. So, chapter three, uh, we he see how Haman simultaneously is kind of working up his way in the corporate ladder and his career is advancing. And we don't get much other background about him uh, as far as that goes. Obviously, he's very successful, hard worker, whatever. Uh, but we do get a piece of his genealogy, that he is a descendant, I mentioned this before, of Agag, the Amalekite, an enemy of the Jews. So if you were to, if you were to flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 15, if you remember, this was Saul, they, they defeated the Amalekites, and, and, the, and the command from the Lord at that time was to, as Dr. Dallaire said last week, or this past Shabbat, she used a word called haram, or haram. Do you remember that, when she talked about that in her, her drosh? Uh, talk about this idea, this is this word sometimes it's translated various ways and it means different things actually in different contexts some people like to say well haram means X haram means Y um, but sometimes you'll see it translated as de- something devoted to the Lord or something that's put under the ban what the heck does that mean you know? the point is it's something that's all God's period and at this time the, the message to Saul was that you need to haram these Amalekites and in that case he said don't leave a single descendant, kill them all and if you remember the story, Samuel comes and he says, did you haram everybody? And Saul says, uh-huh, yep, yeah, mm-hmm. And he goes, well, what's this? I hear sheep and I hear, yeah. you know, what's this? Uh, there's an old FedEx commercial. Remember that FedEx commercial the guy's like, did the package get there? It was like chickens or something. He's like, uh, what's this? He's like, not exactly. You know, little cheep, cheep, you know, kind of thing going on? It's that, that picture. He hears all this stuff going on. So he didn't do it. He left a gag along with some of the stuff, right? And Samuel killed, killed came and killed Agag, but but that's the moment when the kingdom was taken away from Saul because obviously they weren't all killed, and so now we've got Mordecai, who is the descendant of uh, who's the descendant of Saul, and Haman, a descendant of Agag. So you can see this this kind of connection here. So when Haman was promoted, um, all the people were then supposed to bow down to him. That's that's the that's the thing he came up with, but we see, like I mentioned a little earlier, that Mordecai didn't, and why didn't he? Well. <clears throat> we see in chapter three, verses four and eight, it, talk, it says that basically, when the edict was given, that Mordecai wouldn't do it. Again, here's another one: Is this God or not? He says, for he t- had told them that he was a Jew. And then Mordecai goes and complains to the king about it. And again, this is where people would, would really want—they really want to na- nail down and say, okay, did Mordecai not bow because he was because he was uh, he knew that he was of the line of Benjamin, and knew the thing between Saul and Agag, and he knew that that you know that was sort of a. A sore spot, or did he do it because of the monotheism? And I think the answer to that is reasonably yes. Probably both could be. Could very well be both, both things. Um, but because of this, this is kind of where the thing, the, the plot turns, and this is where Haman says, "Look, this is a, he has a, he doesn't want to just destroy Mordecai. He wants to go above and beyond that to all the Jewish people that are living uh, in any kind of controlled area under control of, of the king." And that's when he casts the, the, the poor, the lots, cast lots, which is where we get the name of the, the festival from, which determines the date that is set for this destruction of, of everybody. So in the chapter 4, we see that, uh, again, we talked about this earlier, is this, this kind of a picture of a, of a, of a sackcloth and ashes? Uh, again, is this a picture of, of God being a part of the story implicitly? Where Mordecai laments, he wails... And he fasts about this. I don't think it's a normal thing that just anybody in the world does, from a spiritual standpoint necessarily, as much as at least at this time period. Um, and so he does all this stuff, and then he gets the message to to Esther about what's going on, uh, who's now in the in the in the castle, or in the you know, with the king, and asking her to approach the king about this matter, because up until that point she kept her Jewish identity a secret. And now is the point where he's encouraging her. Before he was encouraging her to kind of keep things on the down low. And now he's encouraging her to, you know, to come out with everything. And Esther is not too excited about this, really. Um, you know, she's she's wondering uh, if this would just be a death sentence going into the king unannounced. And this come, from, from this we get that famous line that I think you, if you're quoting things from this, this chapter, I think this is what people really kind of focus in on. Um, and this is in, in the in, in verses 13 to 14 where when Mordecai is trying to convince her so to speak to to do this to step up he he says do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews for if you keep silence at such a time as this relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. I mentioned I read that earlier but you and your father's family will perish who knows perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this and this is where Esther then asks the people to She says, well, you go and you ask everyone to fast uh, on my behalf for three days, and then she'd go into the king. Again, I think another uh, evidence, if you will, or proof in a sense that God is is implicit, if not explicitly, in the text. It doesn't say prayer and fasting, but I think that's the clear image that's being portrayed here. And then chapter 5 begins by telling us that Esther, uh, three days later, put on her royal robes, and then she stood in the inner court of the king's palace. And as soon as the king saw her, she won his favor, and he held out the scepter. This is a big thing, he held it, which means he's not going to kill her. And he said, "What is it, Queen Esther?" And imagine a scenario for Esther here for just a moment. You know, she was definitely uncertain about this whole thing. She doubted. She made that very clear. I'm guessing her heart. I mean, you're nervous. Your heart's really pounding. Sometimes, for you know, why am I pounding? I shouldn't be so nervous about this. But, but in this case, I mean, you could see she would have a, quite a reason for her heart to be pounding. Um, But have you ever thought that before? Like, you ever been standing somewhere thinking, what am I doing here? How did I get into this? Or why am I I doing this kind of thing? What am I doing here? Um, And this, I think, is is, is a really good um, application for us, specifically of what it means to be in the right place at the right time. Because... I think that often, that idea, when I was at the right place at the right time, we think about something like, you know, I was at Starbucks today, and they were giving out free coffee, you know, and I was at the right place at the right time, or, you know, I was at the uh, the checkout thing at King Super the other day, and I left, I checked out, and then I left, and the guy said, oh, sir, is this your money, your cash? Well, it wasn't my cash. I didn't use cash, but, like, I can see the cash sitting there, it, you know, but the point is, I was at the right place at the right time. You found the cash in the change receptacle, you know, um, and I think that's kind of what we think about being in the right place at the right time. But I don't think that's really what this means, being in the right place at the right time. I think we, we need to change our thinking about what it means, considering Esther here being probably in the right place at the right time. And it has more to do with understanding that your life really is, is part of a bigger part of, of God's overall plan, and, and therefore walking in the authority that, that he's given you, whatever that might be, like Esther was doing. Um, because I think we, we kind of get it. We understand that as a believer... We, we you know been redeemed and so forth but the truth is we haven't just been redeemed and made righteous in God's eyes and that's the end of the story that has happened right but it also means that God has has necessarily equipped you for certain things whatever that might be and, and, and things that you need to to serve him and so forth and you know I I, I told the story one time at service I don't know if you remember it but there's a there's a, um, a Bible that I have it's a, a called a reader's Bible it's got Hebrew and Greek and it's got it's a, I can tell you what a reader's Bible is, but it doesn't have full translation. It has translation of some of the more uncommon words. So ideally, if you know a lot of the languages, you can read it. Every once in a while, you glance down and see the words that aren't as common, and you can read. It's called a reader's a reader's Bible, it's supposed to increase your ability to read in Hebrew and Greek. But there's a foreword. Ever read the forward to your Bible? What I mean is before, the before Genesis stuff. If you've not read that, read it. You could have ten Bibles and don't believe me. They all got interesting forwards. if they're different translations. They all have reasons why the Bible was written what their philosophy was, what they were trying to accomplish, and so forth. And this particular Bible has this, this Hebrew student that talks about how he graduated from seminary, I think he even had his PhD, and he ended up like doing some kind of Microsoft Access, some kind of old programming thing, and doing database records for the seminary. And he's thinking, what in the world? He's learning this, this SQL programming or something that I'm, I'm sure I'm messing up the actual programming languages. But he's doing this thing... <coughs> for years, and he's, he's cataloging the stuff, and, and tracking data, and pulling data, and doing all this type of thing, and uh, he didn't know what the heck he's doing, and then then one day he sees there's a, there's a proposal from Zondervan, who's a massive book publisher, Christian, Christian book publisher, and they want to put out this thing, there's no reader's Bible at the time, but they want to put out this thing that would eventually become the reader's Bible, he said, you know, and they were accepting manuscripts. Well, in order to do it, in order to do the fonts correctly and so forth, somehow to lay it out, you needed to know this exact like, skill that he'd been doing for like three, four years. And so he ended up, long story short, he ended up submitting his, his, uh, his, his sample and ended up, he ended up. this is the guy, this is in the front of the Bible that I was reading. So the point being is that there is some preparation. Again, being in the right place at the right time is not just about, again, showing up when they're giving away free coffee, although that would be a good thing, right? I it, that would not be a bad thing. But that's not necessarily what it means in this context in terms of the the spirituality, to be in the right place at the right time. You're equipped in a certain way. You've been faithful in a certain way. And you've got to realize at this point, uh, anyone want to guess how long Esther had been queen at this point? Do you know? By the the time that this kind of plot happened, how long had she been queen when she's getting ready to step in to go to the king? Four years, nearly four years. Actually, I think it's it's, uh, actually a little over four years. The point is, she'd been working in this role for a long time, so that changes, I think, a little bit the way we look at this when she walks in. She walks in with her royal robes on; it specifically says that she put her royal robes on. And in fact, when when uh, when the king sees her, he didn't say, "Hey, hey, honey, what's up? What's up, Esti He didn't say that kind of thing, <laughs> you know. In Hebrew, he said Malacha Esther Hamalcha, which means what 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 to you, Queen Esther, Esther the Queen? Said, Esther the Queen, Esther Ham is king, Malacha is queen. Esther, the queen. He addresses her as the queen. She definitely was walking in her role as queen with her royal robes and in her authority. And again, she was scared, I believe, to the, to the point of death, I'm sure, because she even says, hey, you know, if I lose my life, I'll lose my life. That's what she says at, before she goes in there. Um, but I think she embraced the fact that her appointment as queen was not by mere chance, that she had arrived at royal dignity for a time such as this. It's not that she was just there because they were given up. Coffee and there was money in the change thing or whatever. But she needed to walk in the authority that she'd been given. And again, as 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 people of faith, as believers in Yeshua, um, we're people who also have been sent to do a job. And everything that we say and do in life is is under that authority. And just like Esther walked in her authority, it's, ours is under the authority that God has bestowed upon us. Um, this doesn't mean that we have like the big head or anything like that or an air of superiority. But we recognize God's sovereignty, and we operate in understanding that. Even in times when we're uncertain, even in times when your your heart's beating out of your chest, or even those times when you're standing there thinking, what in the world can't someone else go kind of thing. Even in those times, the the uh, the principle is the same. So, back to chapter 5. Here we go. Sorry if I'm going fast, but I want to make sure I get through the, the chapters, and this is about half of them. There's a few more applications Um so I'll try to be clearly, even though I'm speaking fast. So chapter 5, Esther is received by the king. And she, she, if you're not familiar, she does this multiple lunch invite thing. She says, I want to have a lunch for you and you and Haman, and all this kind of stuff. And Haman leaves the meeting absolutely stoked, very excited, uh, on top of the world. He goes home, tells his wife how awesome he is and how you know, uh, how rich he is, how he's got these ten sons how his career is going great, and even the queen wants to have lunch with him tomorrow. And think about all that stuff. That's some pretty good stuff, isn't it? I mean, rapid ride. He was basically second in command. Ten sons, you know, things are going wonderful. He's getting an invite to the queen. But there was one thing that bothered him. Just one thing. There was the burr in his saddle, uh, if you will. And it's that he couldn't get out of his mind the fact that that one Jew, that one Jew, I didn't say all the Jews, that one Jew, Mordecai, would not show him the proper respect, you know? And I thought about this, you know, that there's, is there always like one little thing that kind of bothers you no matter how great something is, you know? Uh, I, I told this story before too, you may have remembered. I've got a, a minivan, it's kind of old now, but uh, if you saw it, you'd say it's white. In fact, I took it into a shop the other day and the guy was writing down, he told somebody, yeah, they said, what color? He said, it's white. I said, oh no, it's not white. I said it's Arctic Frost Pearl. I said I know that was your second guess, you know. But the Toyota Toyota says it's Arctic Frost Pearl. It's not white. It's the premium color. Get that right, you know. And so one time there was a little someone had hit my door and it was a little bit. It wasn't scratch, but it was one of those. You know, the paint kind of came off their car, and so I buffed it out with some rubbing compound, and it kind of got the, the shiny clear coat dulled. The paint came off, but that little shiny clear coat was dull. So you know. Every time I got to my car, no matter what, it's this wonderful, beautiful Arctic frost pearl—you know—my eyes go to right on the side door, that one little, you know, little, little fuzzy spot, right? And uh, that's dissatisfaction. You know what I mean? That's dissatisfaction. We get four out of five things for our birthday when you were a kid, maybe not now. And uh, what about the fifth thing? Where, where's the, you know, where's the, where's that? Right? All we do is we think about the one thing we couldn't get. And uh, I'm not going to say that, that, that Haman didn't have any other flaws. I, I don't know. We, again, we don't know a whole lot about him. Um, but the reality is that the story of Esther doesn't tell us these things, but it only tells us about this one thing, this one fatal flaw that ends up becoming the complete downward spiral of his entire, what looked like a pretty good life, right? A pretty good life for sure. Um, he had so much, anything that anyone could have wanted, except all he could think about was that one little thing. In chapter 5, verse 13. And that, that really is pride and dissatisfaction. I think that's, again, a, a good thing for us to not assume that we're not like that necessarily, but to see kind of what that can lead to. Because it led to, you know, he was, he was very high in honor, but he also led to the, kind of the lowest of the low uh, when it turned to his, uh, you know, when he had to honor Mordecai. And then even beyond that when he was, you know, destroyed in his sons and so forth. And it's a big one. And again, I don't think it's it's a big thing, this dissatisfaction uh, and, and pride and so forth is something that we should overlook and just assume it's something uh, that's Haman's problem and not something that we can gain as we consider different things about this this festival, this feast. I and mean, yes, it's about preservation, but let's look at the, the lessons we can learn about some of the characters here. And this is certainly, I think, something that's relatable to all of us uh, in terms of Haman's story. Um, Proverbs 26:24 says that the one who hates others <coughs> disguises it with his lips, but he stores up deceit within him. What is it saying, you know? You may not be saying it out loud, but there's something in there that's going on, right? You may not be saying these things about, about somebody. It says, when he speaks, and I say he, I will say when he or she speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations within him. Though his hatred may be concealed by deceit, His evil will be uncovered in the assembly. The one who digs a pit will fall into it. The one who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. If you know more about the further parts of the story, that's exactly what happened to Haman. Deuteronomy 19.18 says, The judges will thoroughly investigate the matter, and if the witness should prove to be false, and to have given false testimony against the accused, you must do to him what he had intended to do to the accused. In this way you will purge evil from among you. Again, evidence of God that the fact that this story of Esther worked out exactly that way. I mean, almost to the, to the letter, right? So chapter 5 ends with, started with Haman, you know, with this kind of high note from Haman. And it ends with Haman's wife and his friends telling him, yeah, man, you, you get that Jew. You know, you, you're, you're justified to be dissatisfied, you know. And so they told him to build this big gallows to hang Mordecai on. So that kind of pleased Mordecai. He was very, I mean, not Mordecai, I mean that pleased Haman. And Haman was very happy um, having got that plan all worked out. I'm going to take care of this one little problem in my life and then tomorrow I'm going to get, I'm going to, I'm going to, get to go and talk to the king about it. And then he went off to a, a, to a good night's sleep. Chapter 6, again, one of the big coincidences again. The king uh, was sleepless that night, the night before Haman was coming in. <coughs> to help him sleep, he asked for the kingdom records to be read to him wherein another coincidence, the record of Mordecai foiling that plot to kill the king was read, and the king was like, man, did anything ever come of this, did, did we ever do anything for this guy, I don't recall ever doing anything, and they said, no, no we didn't, so um, just at that time, when the king decided we're going to do something for this person, just at that time, another coincidence, Haman was entering the king's court, coming to work early, a little bit of a brown noser, I guess, uh, the king asked Haman. I had to describe that to my Korean friend in seminary because I they were, you know they were using that term in class. I know he had no idea what brown noser meant. So <laughs> now he, uh, I explained it to him gently. And now he uses it all the time. But, uh, he does. I told him all kinds of stuff. I mean, not, not bad stuff. Uh, brown noser, two timer, all these kind of things. He didn't know what they were. So things that came up in, in class. So, um, so more to, So he happens to be out there. And thinking that, you know, when the king asks him, what can we do to honor this person who did this? Uh, Mordecai, and Haman thinking that, man, this could only be me that he's talking about, lays out a whopper of a plan to, you know, to parade him around in a horse and shout these wonderful things in front of him. And this is what the king does to the one he honors. And the king says, wonderful. You know, do that to Mordecai. You know, everything you said. So <clears throat> Esther holds another uh, lunch for the king and for Haman. And that's where she finally reveals the plan of how, how Haman, what Haman was going to do and how it will lead to the destruction of her and her people. And, and ultimately, that causes harm to the king. So the king just really doesn't say anything. He leaves the room. And again, when he, another kind of coincidence, he comes back in, and he finds Haman sort of getting really close to Esther, begging her to, you know, please, that, this is not what I meant, and all this kind of stuff. And so that even doubly, the king is enraged even more because he thinks, you're hitting on my wife in addition to all this stuff. And so that's it. That, that, that's the beginning of the end. For, uh, for Haman. And so the last basically three chapters, um, you know, kind of summarize here, you see that Haman's that dissatisfaction, that one kind of critical flaw of his had some lasting impact just because of the way the, the laws in, in Persia uh, worked there. Because his edict, this is something the king had rubber stamped in a sense, to kill all the Jews on a dark 13, that still was in effect, and the king couldn't revoke the, the law. But he, what they had to do is he could put another law in place that kind of helped help them. And so he put the law in place that the Jews could uh, thoroughly defend themselves by whatever means possible uh, if someone were to, to take action against them so they could be proactive. And so that's kind of what, what helped them. They triumphed, and Mordecai was, Mordecai was actually promoted in the kingdom. And Haman and his whole household were killed and uh, instituted, it's funny to put the Feast of Passover, but that wasn't the Feast of Passover beast of point. It's another P. Spelled a little differently. <laughs> Change that in my notes. Um, coincidentally, also in chapter 9, we see some interesting things, I think, additional evidence. I may have, Did I talk about this one or not? Yeah, no, this is an interesting piece of evidence, I think, also for God that we see in chapter uh, 9, where it says uh, that the people didn't touch the plunder. You'll see that in, in verse, uh, verse 3, 15, and 16, I think this is mentioned over and over again, that they didn't touch the plunder, they didn't touch the plunder. And I think that also kind of harkens back to maybe the a correction, for example, of the error that that, that Saul committed in First Samuel 15. Did they know about that? Did they say, gosh, the, the problem in the past was that Saul tried to uh, you know touch all this plunder, and that means that's why Haman's even alive today. You know what, we're not going to touch this stuff. Uh, I don't know, but it, it does seem reasonable that possibly they—I uh, mean—that's in there; it's in the word that they—it says it three times—that they—they you know, didn't touch the plunder, they didn't touch the plunder, they didn't touch the plunder—and that was the real the real problem in First Samuel 15. So, when we read this story, and hopefully you, you read it again, or you read it when Purim comes up again, um, and others in the Bible where we see situations that look what I would call, uh, they look sticky, or a close call, you know, how do, how do you react, you know, when you, when you read about, for example, Yeshua being uh, delayed when he's going to see Jairus' daughter dying, or Lazarus dying, right, and he's, he's, he's delayed, and and even the characters in the story, man, if you'd only would have come sooner, you know, this would have been, would have been different, it would have worked out differently, if you'd have just come sooner, um, do we side with the characters in the story thinking, yeah, if you'd only been there sooner and if you wouldn't have been sidetracked, right? Do we, do we side that way or do we, do we think, you know what, we realize that God knows what he's doing uh, and then we read about the miracles because we read about the miracles in all of these stories basically, right? Um, but we have, we have a choice. We're faced with those same kind of those same kind of things, you know? And, and if, if, if how we react to the scripture is, if we react to the scripture in a way of like, yeah, why couldn't Yeshua have been there quicker? What makes us think that we're going to react to lo- our life any differently? You know what I'm saying? The way we read scripture should be the way we consider our lives as well, because it is useful for, for our lives, for teaching and training and so forth. So why, why do we live our lives differently in that sense? Why is it that when, when things seem uh, like they're going all different directions and so forth, um, and, and they're going bad for us, that our immediate focus is on ourselves and our situation, and how we're going to untangle this whole mess, or, or worse yet, why is it when those kind of things present to us that why do we we question where God is, you know, we question where is God in this situation if only he'd been here, you know, kind of thing um, but I pray that that when we read our own lives that we would also, that they would match the way we, we see the Bible, kind of like when you know the score of the game before, you know, you watch it and you know they win in the end and yet they're losing the fourth quarter and there's four seconds left, you're like this is <laughs> going to be good, you know, because you, know you know they won kind of thing. Um, I would pray that we would read Read our lives the same way in which we read the Bible. These stories of victory, where we know that God knows what's going on, even though it looks like where was He in the story of Esther? Where was He when you know with Lazarus and, and Jairus' daughter and so forth? I pray that that our, our way we read the Bible would match. And we need to, we need our first assumption not to be how am I why am I here? How am I going to get out of the sticky situation? What went wrong? Where is God? But that our first assumption needs to be that God's not on holiday, as Haim often says, that He that He is involved. And that he's not some great you know, craftsman who made the watch and then spun it into action and then stepped back and is not, not in, you know, intimately involved and so forth. And it's also interesting to think about in the book of Esther, this whole situation, this whole situation of being in exile, um, while it was told by the Lord that this would happen, it wasn't necessarily these people's faults. You know? This gets into an area that is very uncomfortable for some of us sometimes this idea that, you know, there's possibly some repercussions that I'm suffering because of someone before me. Because we can go on the side of all the way over here which says there are generational curses and this is, you're living this way because of something your ancestors did. To this side over here that says there's nothing in your past that affects you right now. And uh, and you are a new creature and you are completely, you know, do not listen to any of that nonsense. There is some truth That somewhere, maybe it's closer to this side, I don't know if it's closer to this side, the point is there's some truth in the middle. The fact is there are ramifications for future based on the past. You can't say, you know, my mom drank alcohol when I was pregnant. That's why I'm this way. The point is those kind of things do happen. The reality is there are things like that. We don't want to live in them on the side over here (laughs) and be condemning and so forth. We don't want to ignore them over here, okay? So... when we look at Esther, the fact is they were living, they were in that situation, in in, in exile, so to speak, under a Persian king, uh, not because of of, of their own personal screw-ups. And again, we can find ourselves in the very same situation lamenting all the things that happened to you and your upbringing and all this kind of stuff. Um, But you do have a choice to make in those situations. You can try to unravel all the pieces. You can try to rely on the fact that it's not my fault at all. Um, You can try to decide if God's ticked off with you do all kinds of things or you can simply trust God and I want to encourage you to to take the time to consider uh, areas of your life where maybe that's been the case maybe you areas which you've been assuming that God's absent where he's upset um, or areas where he's not active and uh, hasn't taken any any control and I would encourage you to to ask him to show you areas where that might be areas that maybe you know where, where you think he's not firmly kind of driving the car if you will Enabling you to walk in that authority, enabling you to be in the right place at the right time. And so, those, again, in addition to the the story of God's strong preservation in His hand, I think hopefully you've heard some other things about the story of of, uh, of Esther, which is I you know, I equate the two basically. pouring and the story of Esther are the same, one and the same. Um, hopefully, there's been some things in there that you hadn't thought of before that are more applicable. Than just the fact that you know what God's in control. God God has everything in control. Yes, but there are some there are some things to learn. Some, some things from the negative parts of the story, as well as from the positive parts of the story, and then uh, so it might give some more some more thought to the some of these traditions that that we talked about. But uh, anyways, any questions or comments? We got a few, we have about a few minutes left. Actually, I was afraid I'd run out of time, so I went a little quick. But any questions or comments about about any of this? Katrina, sorry. I don't know. I mean, to me, it it speaks a lot about authority. About what? Authority. Authority? Yeah. Yeah. All the way through it. (laughs) To me, you know, like, even when Mordecai sees that the king's going to be killed, he knows that God's placed him there. That's a good point. Did y'all hear that? -hmm. Okay, sorry. Yeah, it's a good point. Necessarily, you can dress up in your royal robes and know you, you, you are authorized to come and speak. And yeah, yeah. did you put down somewhere? Oh yes, did you? How did you know that um, Esther was queen for years? I have to look back. I think there's some time time indicators in there. Uh, I can try to find them again. But I think if you read the story. I think I think there are some actual year indicators and such and such year of the king and so forth. Sorry I didn't have that ri- written out yet. Yeah. I know. I don't want to tell you. I want you to read it. I forgot the actual. There's a, that's the thing. When you read in the Bible, there's, there are sometimes, there are, there are things we often do gloss over. Time markers are huge because they're not there just to, for no reason. They're really important to them. You see how long t- how long something went on, for how long someone prayed. Uh, or certainly the lineage like we saw today. I mean, the lineage is kind of an inter- interesting thing. The genealogies that you can just gloss over. But they're there for a reason. Sometimes you can't make any. Sense. I mean, sometimes I think they're there just to show that this is a real person. Like the, when you look at um, uh, 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 Jonah, for example, and people that wanted to say mythical and no one was in the belly of the fish. Well, I don't know. Like, first of all, let's forget a second how Yeshua talks about this being it seems to be he believed it. But he's the son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, Heber or someone, and you find that person elsewhere. In the Bible. So if you say this isn't true, well then all of a sudden, what do we do with the mention of the guy's father in Chronicles? So it gets, so those are important things, genealogy as well as dating. Uh, let me get Yacha first and I'll come back to you. I just wondered, um, like, why do you think uh, that Esther had not told the king up front that she was Jewish? Or was that <coughs> for him to marry? That's a good question. I think, I mean, what if I told her what if that? I told her that. Mm-hmm. Somebody thought it would not mm-hmm. have been prudent at this juncture as well but yeah, I think. He thought it wouldn't have been a good thing, in you know, she not have gotten chosen, I don't know, um, it doesn't seem like the people were necessarily persecuted the people, they weren't exiles, maybe it wouldn't have been the first choice, and I think he wasn't trying to get her in there just so she could be part of the harem, I don't know that that would have been a really good thing, so, and yes ma'am, I keep forgetting your name, I'm so sorry, um, okay. I mean, Carolyn, I didn't say Carol, but I was, okay, Carolyn. Like, um, yeah, I don't think there's the in the New Testament that talking about right. I could be wrong. I don't believe any of these character. I mean, any of these characters specifically, or the stories mentioned in the New Testament, that's kind of why it sometimes seems kind of the Jewish mind, they do care. But in general, even b- believers think the Book of Esther. So what? I mean, there'd be no New Testament without it, in a sense. You know, so yeah. But yeah, I don't believe there's any direct. I'll, I could double check on that but I don't believe there's any direct like you know you search certainly Morta, Mordecai, you see these characters I don't think it talks about lots or anything I, I like Esther because it's obedient version To this idea of meekness and so forth, here we do a study on meekness. You know, it's not this kind of thing. You're meek, same with strength. Same There's their, their strength. I mean, meekness are, is the idea of like a, a horse that's under a bit or something. It's not the horse isn't weak, but it's under authority. Doesn't mean that horse is a weakling or something like that. So it's a. You're absolutely right. We, we tend to think about being under authority, submission, weakness, or humility as a weakness, and it's not necessarily at all. But that's that's quite. That's where you know think a lot of people who, who want to sort of fight God in, 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 in the overall sense kind of miss it. They think, I don't want to, you know, the crutch and all this kind of stuff, and that God's a crutch and I don't need it. Thinking that somehow restraint is a bad thing. Like when I get in the street when my kids are really little, like, I grab their hand. It's a good thing. Like, restraint is an important thing. It's a good thing. It's, good thing. it's preservation and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so, and they, it'd be, it would behoove them to not, you know, to not resist. They're going to get drug along the ground or something, you know. So, yes, Russell. Is there any uh, tradition such as uh, history or the uh, rabbinic tradition Is this speaking of offspring of Esther? Okay. Um, not that I know. Of, not with Esther. Because obviously with Ruth we get the specific lineage of David and so forth. Um, but as James mentioned, who else was a Benjamin? Paul. I don't know if there's ever been a connection saying just being in the same tribe doesn't mean you're a direct descendant, but that would be an interesting study. I don't know. But I, I, I haven't read anything about that. It could very well be. Believe me, the rabbis don't leave many uh, strings untied, so there probably is some type of drash or something in, in the Talmud and Mishnah about that. Let's take, let's take one more. So we have a few minutes. Yes, Mary. I was thinking of, um, the idea of Right. They don't don't bring it up as specific. No. And yet it's important because that's why I think the Jewish people honor it. Besides Esther and her commitment, is that God is with you to the battle. Right. And we don't don't read about it, whereas on the one hand, we we read about, yes, the king said they made this decree that they can can defend themselves in whatever way is necessary. But we don't see that the, the people really bought into Haman's. (coughs) <coughs> plan and so forth and were they ready to get every Jew you don't see that my guess is no my guess is they see what happened to Haman my guess is if you heard a rule that came out and said you know like if we were going to go out and kill the Jews and there was some rule by the, the governing authorities in this country that said uh, Jews you can take a gun you can take a bazooka you can take a knife you can hire a bodyguard you probably would say yeah okay, I probably shouldn't mess with that. I mean it was pretty much implied so but you don't read about it but we can use our imagination to see how the people reacted, probably to that so. How many there were versus, right, versus. Yeah, yeah you know, I don't think, it, not in the book of Esther, I'm sure it's historically there's probably history that does talk about, you know, were they a minority, how much of a minority, were there, where were they, you know, concentrated, that Very kind of stuff. Yeah. how serious was it? Was it just Mordecai that was freaking out all the people yeah. and what okay. have you? I said, we'll take one more, Jews. It says at the end of the book that the Jews killed 75,000 men. It's true, it does. Now you're right. I do remember that now. You're a absolutely lot right. Yeah. So that obviously there that was. Means there were a Right. In, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's a tremendous amount. Thanks for bringing that up. I did. Forget, I did forget that. You're right. Yeah. I did. So, James, you mind closing us? No. All right. Thank you.